Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Brexit means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. I am Royfield Brown, who is back home in a sunny but very chilly Birmingham. And today we're joined by Salon's chief political writer, it's Amanda Marcotte in Philadelphia, and by the brains behind the Echo Chamber website, Alice Thwaite in... Where are you, Alice? I'm actually in London. I've moved to London again. Yay. Have you? Yeah. Bloody hell, you're as bad as me for moving around. Anyway, say hello, folks. Hello. Hello. In a week that has seen one woman victorious in her battle on one side of the Atlantic and the other still all at sea politically, we take a deep dive into the political crisis in Washington and in London. And Terry, one of the things we also learned here is that Nancy Pelosi, the House Speaker, takes her constitutional role pretty seriously <laughs> and knows how to hold her team together. Well, he's met his match, hasn't he? Uh, and it was it was striking to see it. He was expecting that she would not be able to hold the Democrats together, that she somehow would fold up, and she wasn't going to. She had the right line, which is that whatever you're going to offer, don't hold the government hostage in right. the meantime. And if he's going to work for the American people, he has to listen to more of them. It seems right now he's governing from the assumption that uh, the people at his rallies and anchors on Fox News represent the majority of opinion in America. And that no, my I was the, one of the oh. people that was saying that Nancy Pelosi was not the right speaker going forward, that they need leadership change. I'm here saying I was wrong. I completely underestimated how powerful and how strong she is. Amanda, the Democrats in Washington have spent the last two years trying to thwart President Trump. But after the president's defeat over the government shutdown, will Pelosi's speakership signal the end of Trump's mesmerizing spell over the American people and its politics? It's a very good question. I mean, I think... Um, Thank you. I think it's very... I think one of the things that is important to understand is Nancy Pelosi knows what she's doing. She's always known what she's doing. She was able to pull a similar... Um, coup over George W. Bush in 2005 when he tried to to remake Social Security and she just drew a line in the sand and just would not let that happen. So in that sense, you know, I wouldn't underestimate her. On the other hand, I would also not underestimate the power of the presidential office, the, the power of the White House, the power of being president. I, I really hope that people don't get it in their head that just because Nancy Pelosi is able to check some of Trump's agenda, especially on ridiculous items like the border wall that he couldn't even get past when he had control of both houses of Congress, the Republicans had control of both houses of Congress. I hope that they don't mistake her ability to stop him on big ticket items like that for him being out of power entirely. I mean, he's still the president. He's still quietly gutting much of the agenda that the American people want from the executive branch. He's he's changing all these federal bureaucracies, basically destroying what they're able to do and and the kind of work they can do. So it's kind of a mixed bag, I'd say. All right, let's come back 
on to Pelosi in a little bit before we talk a little bit more about uh, the oath in the White House. But Alice, it's hard not to contrast Pelosi's uh, victory and her kind of seeming pre-evidence preeminence, sorry, over Congress with May's kind of stubbornness over Brexit. Both women are displaying grit, but one seems to be the winner and one seems to be definitely a loser. Is there anything that our Prime Minister can learn from Pelosi right now? Oh my God, I'd just like Theresa May to listen to anyone who's not her advisors right now. They do have similarities, but in some ways they are quite different situations. I mean, Pelosi is up against Donald Trump and the president, which is just one man, yes, backed by quite a few other people. But Theresa May has got so many different players who are causing this stalemate, I suppose, that it's very difficult to see how Theresa May is just standing strong, like she's been trying to stand strong for the past two years and just has turned in, into my opinion, just quite an arrogant and, and very weak person. Has you know, she hasn't she hasn't listened to anyone basically. So I don't think she can necessarily learn anything from Nancy Pelosi. I think instead she should start be thinking about, well, I wish I had collaborated 12 months ago with these MPs and now I'm gonna have to really start listening to them now, whilst also trying to figure out how on earth I negotiate with the EU. Um, I, yeah, I, if I'm honest, I'm kind of in this camp of people who thinks that uh, there is probably going to be a no deal because I can't see there being a people's vote just because there's not enough time. And I'm starting to I am starting to panic a bit, not to panic the listeners of your podcast because we're trying to reduce panic in the UK. But it is worrying. Oh, no, uh, Alice, we're all we're all in this together. So we're all panicking <laughs> together with you. Um, but. Hasn't there been moves, and I forget which Tory it was, that basically said that we need uh, some kind of an uh, amendment on us to leave the European Union, to push it back by at least a few months, in inverted commas, so at least we have more time to negotiate. So a lot of these amendments will actually stop some kind of no-deal Brexit, but any that kind was, of mechanism... Yeah, go Wasn't on. that Andrea Leadsom, though, and then didn't she just immediately deny that she'd said it? It wasn't led some, it was a bloke. And, and whilst I ask Amanda another question about President Pelosi in the States, I'll furiously look at my iPhone and discover exactly which Tory this was. Uh, Amanda, let's come back to you. Pelosi's just tr treated Donald Trump to a brutal civics lesson about the separation of powers under the US Constitution. How exactly, for us people outside of uh, the US, how exactly did she beat Trump? What did she do? You know, and I think it's interesting to kind of think about the the Theresa May and Nancy Pelosi comparison because in a lot of ways, they're just in a very different situation, right? Mm -hmm. Pelosi just had a really strong hand, which is Donald Trump wants to build a border wall with Mexico. And that's stupid. Everyone knows it's stupid. Everyone knows it's not going to happen. <laughs> and so she has a strong hand in the sense that he has no real support in the Hill for this. Like, it's not just the that she's controlling Congress. I mean, again, he had two years where he controlled Congress and the White House, and he still couldn't get it done. So the way I'd put it is if Republicans in his caucus actually cared and wanted to get this wall done, I think she would be in a weaker position. But right now she's the person saying, we're not going to do this ridiculous thing that nobody cares about. And that, that's an incredibly strong position to be from. Um, I think the problem, you know, in comparison with someone like Theresa May is that she's the person backing the, the bad idea. <laughs> and, and there's something structural I think about, how hard it is to pass a bad idea in the first place. And and then when you have no support and you have no power, it, it kind of collapses on its own. Can I ask you a question, Amanda, on that? Because yes. I was reading some editorials before and it, I thought that Donald Trump had lost a lot of support because there were so many people who did support the wall. So there was kind of editorials from... Uh, Breitbart and Fox News that said we're withdrawing support from Donald Trump and now he is the weakest president that we've ever seen because he was an un unable to stand up to Pelosi on this. And I was shocked by that because I thought I thought it was the case that no one really wanted the wall. Yeah, what, what, which is it basically? The way I would put it is nobody wants the wall. <laughs> 
What a lot of, I mean, there are probably base voters who've convinced themselves they want the wall, but the wall has always been a symbol of racism. It's not a, it's more of a fantasy than a reality. It's a geographical impossibility in a lot of places, right? And I, I think what Breitbart and all those people want is to stick it to the liberals and they want to get a victory and they want to crow about how they won. They often treat politics like sports in that way. And I, I don't think that like the wall, it could be anything. It could be the wall is a MacGuffin in that sense. It could be Donald Trump was standing up for, you know, legalizing ferries or Donald Trump was standing up for a rocket ship to Pluto. It doesn't really matter. It just matters that Donald Trump wins. Right. And, and. But I don't all... understand how, I really don't understand the point that these people could be, because Piers Morgan actually was writing about it in the Daily Mail, and he also agreed with Breitbart and Fox News and said a wall had to be built. I don't understand how these people can stand up for something that's so untenable and is, are still trying to turn this metaphor into a physical thing. I just don't get the logic on that. And I'm not saying that you're necessarily in that mindset. I think they're crazy and wrong and, and they don't know what they're talking about, if I'm being honest. And I think that that's part of the problem here because Breitbart and Piers Morgan and idiots like that can can convince themselves that a wall is a good idea. But what the actual politicians on the Hill, not all of them, there's, there's more than their fair share of idiots in the Republican caucus for sure. But like, you know, the Paul Ryans and Mitch McConnells and people who aren't completely stupid that are in the caucus know that the wall is dumb. They know that it doesn't work. There has been uh, situations in the past where the Democrats were actually willing to strike a deal with Donald Trump to build, to give him his wall money. And not to bore you with the details too much, because I think part of the reason they were offering the deal was they knew that it was never going to probably actually be built. <laughs> They were willing to give him money for some amount of fencing and and to say he was getting a wall built, right, without actually doing it. And they were going to do so in exchange for a bunch of goodies they wanted, you know, not goodies, but like important agenda items that they wanted, including some immigration laws that would allow currently undocumented people like a path to citizenship, right? And his own base, the very same people that claim they want the wall, all the immigration hawks, um, they scuttled the deal because at the end of the day, they know the wall is stupid. They know the wall doesn't work. Um, they certainly weren't going to give up something that's real, which is to say like keeping undocumented people undocumented in exchange for this wall that they know is just a symbol and, and is not important at all in the long run. So it's it's a strange situation to say. But that. Amanda, isn't that kind kind of the point that the wall isn't important, the physical wall, but it's it's the symbol, isn't it? This man basically ran on nothing really other than the wall and to project some form of you know symbolic action to defend in uh, America against the hordes of brown people, you know, ripping its soul away for, on the southern border. And that's really what it's about. It's rhetorical importance. It's symbolic importance. It's not actually um, a wall, is it? And that's yeah, the thing he ran on. So he has to, he has to deliver on, on something uh, which <laughs> resembles bricks in a wall. I, I think you could get into a real academic discussion and analysis of the situation like the reality tv show candidate ran on what was functionally a fantasy and now that he's in office he has to somehow show that he's trying to make a fantasy happen but it's a fantasy a, a tv style fantasy and i think at the end of the day it's collapsing into itself because it's it's just not tenable like Government spending is actually about creating actual objects and, and services in the world. <laughs> He's trying to sort of shoehorn in something that doesn't actually fit into the sort of paradigm of how government works. And I think that is is kind of the problem here. And it's, it's always going to be a problem. I, I think we're going to just sort of the question, my question has always been, like, how long can Donald Trump continue to spin out on this? Or is he going to just like eventually just find some other thing to demagogue on 
I, I would assume that's well, a and, and, thing. Well, and Coulter won't, won't let him forget this, though, will she? <laughs> no. You know, so. no. I um, also don't get why he just didn't shut up about it when he got into office. Like, yeah, it was a great rhetorical device for becoming president, but then just shut up. Why are we still talking about this two years later? I mean, I think this is something that the Democrats ah, Trump's really... a builder. He's a builder, <laughs> yeah. though, remember. You know, but, that he, but he's playing he builds the all these hands here. Like, the Democrats can now just keep on saying, well, where's your wall? Where's your... You know, you haven't done this. And Trump is now in a corner. He's doing exactly what he did as a businessman, which I think a lot of people are overlooking, which is these really, really ill-advised construction po- projects that are dis- doomed to fail. That was mm. his entire career, was one, uh, one after another of, you know, these born to fail casino projects and business bankruptcies because the man just does not know what he's doing. True that. Alice, Trump said he'd build a wall and I think we all kind of agreement um, this wall is not going to get built. May said she'd deliver Brexit. She had some red lines. Will both politicians die on their symbolic respective hills? You go. <sighs> well, I, I actually think the Brexit will happen. So... But I think she will still die on this non-symbolic hill like the rest of us. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Um, Yeah, I I mean, the Tory party has massively, massively failed. I can't see how when we can't get medicine and we can't get food into the UK after the 29th of March. Sorry for panicking your listeners, but this is the kind of the stage that I'm at. I can't see how the Tory party is going to be in power for the next 30 years after this. They have absolutely ruined any sort of political prestige or respectability that they once had. Yeah, so Theresa May is not only going to die on this non-symbolic hill, but she's going to take the party with her. And if I was in the Conservative Party right now, as a strategist or anyone who was a Conservative Party supporter, I would be panicking. I would be trying to get any deal through that I could in order to avoid the political suicide that is about to occur on the 29th of March. But don't you need a willing opposition leader to be able to plunge that knife in, uh, whether it's in, in Theresa May's uh, stomach, so to speak, metaphorically, or in her back? And Jeremy Corbyn is not willing and able to do that because he's uh, not even a secret Brexiteer. He is a Brexiteer himself. So he's trying to argue the semantics of being in opposition whilst not trying to tear the government down. Don't get me wrong, we have got the worst prime minister and the worst leader of the opposition that we've probably ever had. And, <laughs> and the most critical point in our, you know, in our nation's history. And yeah, Jeremy Corbyn should go down just as much as Theresa May. But I, I think the Labour Party can kind of breathe a sigh of relief that um, they're not going to be the party responsible for kind of literally having no food on, on the supermarket shelves. Like that symbolically... It, you know, if we're talking about symbolism, that is a mm. sign of a, of a government that has completely and utterly failed. Um, am I worried about um, Jeremy Corbyn potentially coming prime minister? Yeah, I am. But uh, yeah, my immediate worry is coming up in about, what, five weeks time. Um, oh. OK, so we've had a government sucked down in the US and that's something which is impossible in the UK. And the US is kind of famous for its kind of co-equal branches of government. It seems to me, Alice, that we're kind of having something almost similar appear in the UK, whereby Parliament is really displaying its supremacy over government. In the long run, let's take Brexit out of it, because I'm somewhat tired of talking about Brexit all the time. But let's take Brexit out of this. Is this something which is going to be a trend in UK politics? And if it is, is it something to be welcomed to have a more rebellious parliament that isn't just a rubber stamp to the executive? Well, I think I think the key point with this is that constitutionally, we're incapable of being able to deal with the fact that a referendum, uh, like a direct vote by, I'm putting inverted commas here, the will of the people, can then be pitted exactly with parliamentary democracy, which is what we tend to mm. have. So constitutionally, we're in a bit of a bind. So I don't actually see this as being something that could happen long term, as long as we don't carry on having stupid referendums, which means that you can kind of claim that one source of power has more legitimacy than another. Um, So hopefully, as soon as this is out of the way, then we're not going to uh, we're not going to have this kind of stalemate again. 
But wouldn't it be a good thing though if the power of the party whips in the commons was lessened and you know once backbenchers have got a little bit of a taste for this kind of independence surely it's going to be uh, i'm mixing all my metaphors here but it'd be like the genie coming out of the bottle you know we have another general election and you can clearly see that whoever wins it the front benches are going to be much weaker because you know the MPs now have this sense that, you know what, Parliament is sovereign, which is one of the things that Jacob Rees-Mogg and the ERG and all those Brexiteers always said, that Parliament is sovereign, not the executive. Um, so I think, I think actually like the declining influence of the party whips has more come about by digital tools like they work for you, which means that mm -hmm. voters are more able to see exactly how their local MP has voted and be able to hold them accountable for what they promised previously. So I don't think that Brexit has led to this kind of, yeah, the, the, the lack of influence of the chief whips. What I think there does need to be is, is more of an understanding of what consensus looks like in Parliament, um, more of an understanding of how exactly Parliament courts the media and how that influences votes um, in a new digital democracy. So yeah, we're not, talking, we're not talking about Brexit here, but there is a real problem with collaboration and consensus within MPs at the moment, because they are spouting such vitriol towards each other that it is just it, it's not on I, I like as i'm the first to say i think there should be disagreement i think there should be protest i should think there should be a lack of consensus in the public sphere which is kind of anything outside of government but in government itself we need to, in, to have some sort of consensus making and uh, everyone's forgotten that that's the primary purpose of government mm. and one of the things which is definitely highlighted in the British system is basically the power of the speaker that in a position whereby parliament isn't just bent to the will of the governing party, that somebody like John Burko actually becomes quite an influential figure, somewhat like um, a mini Pelosi almost. Can, we, can um, we also talk about how irritating it is that the whole of the EU thinks that John Burko is the best man in British politics right now? Have you seen all of these videos that were coming out of like Germany, oh, no. Spain, Italy? Tell me. Oh, everyone was just, they were like these videos of John Burko being like a stereotypical British man with a very pompous accent, just things, saying things like, order, order. And uh, you, should, you should get one up on the website and maybe kind of like link to it. But every single, because I used to live in Berlin, every single German that I know posted something like this and said, we love the British, we love John Burko. And I was sat here with my housemate, who's a civil servant, and we both had our head in our hands. Because <laughs> he's obviously not, I don't think he's a, a great example of a, of a British MP. I'd uh, rather have someone like Jess Phillips up there, but there you go. Well, you never know, you might get Speaker, Speaker Phillips, maybe not in the next parliament, maybe the parliament after. Uh, right, let's go back to the US from one speaker to another, so John Burke back to Nancy Pelosi. Why is it that Trump can't think of a nickname for Pelosi? <laughs> um, Wasn't that just so stunning in, in that press meeting? And he just went, uh, Nancy Pelosi, who I call Nancy. You, know. <laughs> you should call her boss, I guess. Um, you know, I think that really gets to it, though. Like Trump's name nicknames are diminishing about diminishing people. Mm -hmm. The only way he can think of to diminish a woman is to insult her sexual attractiveness. And I think that that he faltered on Pelosi for a couple reasons. One is I think he's actually like learned that that tends to backfire on him when he tells a woman she's ugly. And two, Nancy Pelosi is a very attractive woman. Um, even he probably has to admit that. <laughs> and um, I think he just was like reaching for a name like Horseface or other things he's called women and, and just sort of faltered because he knew that that was just not going to work. That it, it, He's not a bright person, but once in a while he realizes, I think, that that's going to that fall apart on him, that that's not going to work. Pelosi, she's not necessarily prolific on Twitter. She doesn't, you know, have these kind of cozy relationships with members of the press, etc. She 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 isn't always on MSNBC, etc., etc. Is the fact that she's almost the inverse of Trump? You know, she's someone who understands policy and she understands politics and government. 
the reason why she's the perfect foil for this president right now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they couldn't be more different in that way, right? She, um, she knows what she's doing. He doesn't. Um, she actually knows how power work. He de- works. He doesn't. She knows like what coalitional politics are, and and that this is supposed to be a coalitional government. The thing is like, and and she understands conflict. I think the thing is Trump, like despite the fact that he likes to crow about how he's a deal maker and he likes to brag about how he's a winner and all that, he's actually somebody who has pretty much carefully his whole life been shielded from anything resembling real conflict. Mm. Um, and, and insofar as he's conflicted with the other Republicans for the past three or four years, it's they mostly take a dive, right? Um, they're, they've, they're so afraid of alienating his you know, all-important base that other Republicans won't give him actual conflict. They won't actually stand up to him. So, you know, I I think he's just not somebody who actually has any idea of what to do when he's actually met with sincere resistance from another person. Um, He's a spoiled rich boy who his entire life, you know, the world has been shaped to make sure that he's catered to and pandered to, and he just does not do very well when that's not the situation he's in. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. past few weeks, this House has left no one in any doubt about what it does not want. It does not want to leave the EU without a deal, because that would hurt our economy and disrupt people's lives. It does not want to hold a general election, because it would waste time, increase division and solve none of the problems we face. Indeed, this House renewed its confidence in Her Majesty's Government a fortnight ago. Neither do I see anything approaching a majority across the House to hold a second referendum. But I also accept that this House does not want the deal I put before it in the form that it currently exists. The vote was decisive and I listened. So the world knows what this House does not want. Today we need to send an emphatic message about what we do want. Time again, members on the opposition benches have stood up and asked me to listen to this house. Now I come to this house having listened to the house, and they say you shouldn't have done it. 
I think there is a willingness on the other side in, in terms of the European Union to agree a deal with the United Kingdom. But what they clearly said when the meaningful vote was lost, they wanted to know what it was the UK wanted to see happening in relation to the deal. That's an opportunity that we have today. This amendment will give the mandate I need to negotiate with Brussels an arrangement that commands a majority in this House. One that ensures we leave with a deal and addresses the House's concerns while guaranteeing no return to the hard border between Northern Ireland and Ireland. What I'm talking about is not a further exchange of letters, but a significant and legally binding change to the withdrawal agreement. Alice, I think it's, it's going to be interesting. Just so happens that we have this, uh, these, these two female figures, one on either side of the Atlantic, who um, have their, their hands on the tiller of power, so to speak, at the moment. And as we've kind of said before, it's hard not to compare and contrast with their respective styles and fortunes at the moment. Theresa May seems to be really driven by an innate sense of, um, I would say, kind of slightly old fashioned noblesse noblige that and also that she's doing she's very much seems to be driven that driven by the fact that she believes she's doing the will of the people and she seems to articulate that into this 51 percent vote for brexit saying things like people have voted for stronger borders uh, to take control of our borders if you come with this kind of sense of you have to implement the national will it's going to be impossible for her to have any kind of consensus in parliament isn't it she did symbolically reach out to the Lib Dems, the SNP, Plaid Cymru, etc. about a week ago or so. But she's all about defending the Tory party from this eminent split, which you kind of hinted at before, which is a very long-winded roundabout way of me asking about three questions all at once. Feel free to answer any one of the many questions I've posed you in whatever order you want. Theresa May is totally deluded, basically. Like, I'm constantly thinking back, and I'm not a huge fan of George Osborne, but I do remember when she kind of became um, Prime Minister, she looked at George Osborne and David Cameron in the eye and she was like, see, you didn't understand the people, I understand the people. And so mm. I don't think that she actually has, like, a conception of what the will of the people actually think. What she thinks is she's got this innate understanding of British pop politics and of, of British psyche, which is just so deluded. It's, it's, it's like she kind of believes she's some sort of god or goddess or something like that because that's the only way that you can explain how she manages to get through political embarrassment after embarrassment with not even like a hint of like a tinge of redness in her cheeks like I, I used to think it was admirable and now I just think she's so blind stupid and I am just so furious that she is leading the country right now because what you need through something which is a 51, 52 to 48% is someone who is able to collaborate, who is able to listen instead of just being so blinkered and not allowing anyone into you know, office apart from two advisors and maybe a husband every now and again. And they're certainly not representative of the British population. So yeah, I'm gonna interpret it in the sense that Theresa May, I honestly think is one of the worst prime ministers we've had for a very, very, very long time. And I'm furious that she's, she's uh, been leading us through Brexit. Well, that's a somewhat of a damning statement, considering we just had uh, David Cameron, who actually led us into this mess in yeah, the first David, place. So. David Cameron actually did listen to um, his advisers, and he made a strategically very, very poor decision. You know, um, mm. and and but other than that, his record, in my opinion, wasn't too bad. I'm speaking as someone who's voted for austerity. Um, well, but you know, there's there's other yeah austerity, but that can be that can be argued about. I'm not really I'm not really prepared to kind of I haven't really read up too much about it. Um, but I don't think that he would have anticipated that austerity would have gone on for this long. He didn't anticipate Brexit, that's for certain. But you know, he had a pretty good record in terms of like gay marriage and all these other kind of bringing the Conservative Party into the 21st century, all those various different things. Um, mm. I Theresa May is just so 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 much worse david cameron was also quite bright in my opinion like he was able to take quite a lot of very complex um very complex information pieces of information and actually make a decision whereas i get the impression that theresa may is just not capable of doing that at all she can kind of only listen to one thing which is that brexit 
was voted for by 51% of the population, 52% of the population, and therefore she must do that. She can't kind of understand any sort of nuance. So, yeah, David Cameron was an infinitely better prime minister than Theresa May um, in my book. Well, he was definitely... Um, well, I was going to say he's a better politician, but, but, I, but I don't know. But, but anyway, anyway, I don't get uh, hung up on, on David Cameron because, if, if nothing else, is the past. But what Theresa, the one aspect where Theresa May is going to go down in history as uh, a politician who is wrong for the, our times is that she's trapped into the, the thinking that parliament and conventional politics is the only solution to the problem. That she hasn't tried to win the hearts and the minds of the British people any other way. What she could have done... No, she doesn't even think that Parliament is the only solution to the problem. She only thinks that she is the only solution to the problem. She doesn't, th she doesn't believe in Parliament because she's rejected that every single kind of cross-party kind of... Any, any sort of establishment of consensus across those party lines. She's only happy when she kind of manages to ridicule Jeremy Corbyn. And if someone can't do that, then... <laughs> God knows, you probably just can't speak English. Do you know, do you know what I mean, though? She, the only no, belief no, that she I, has I, is in herself. Yes, to a degree, I, I do agree with you. But what I mean by going to Parliament, because I agree she has not tried to reach out and get a consensus in Parliament. She's rigidly said, I'm in the gov governing party. Everybody opposite me is actually the opposition. In this time of national crises, she has not tried to reach out and have any form of government of national unity or a cabinet of national consensus or, or anything, considering that we're, we're potentially about to leave the European Union, which is an epoch-defining decision to make, that this shouldn't be seen through the prism of party politics. So that's what I mean by she's held hard and fast to this idea of parliament. But even peeling that back, considering that the country's so divided... The one thing, you know, I'll say about these populists, whether it's Nigel Farage or whether it's Donald Trump or um, Oban in, in Hungary, is that they understand that every now and then you need to circumnavigate traditional politics. And you can talk directly to the people through things like the media, Twitter, the TV, etc. And what Theresa May will crushingly go down as is somebody who has the mindset of a politician 20 years ago, that she doesn't have any charisma, she doesn't have an instinctual bone in her body for the age that we're in now, the media age that we're in now, and then she cannot translate her political uh, drive and instincts through that medium. The one thing I say about Theresa May is she fervently believes in Britain and service she isn't she like a vicar's daughter she's kind of grown up in terms of serving and and doing good by the country and and what she can't do is realize you know the multifaceted faces of the country that the part of the country is is young is metropolitan is black is white etc etc and actually appeal to those and as i say it's one of those one of those things which you know i i don't believe in in populist politics at all but i understand somebody like a trump getting out of the uh, kind of political milieu, the, the way things are done in Washington and getting on Twitter and um, speaking extemporaneously to Fox News because it's another way of kind of winning the argument and actually speaking to the American people. So I, I'll come back on to you, Amanda. And this is one of the things I found really kind of fascinating about Pelosi because as I said before in one of my early questions, what she doesn't do is to pay that media game. She's been really um, pretty steadfast in terms of she is a political person. She understands the media. Yes, um, she she presents very well. But I kind of put it to you, Miss Marcotte, that with Pelosi in Congress and Mitch McConnell in the Senate, we're probably looking at two of the most accomplished political leaders who are kind of versed in the black arts of politics in a generation. Discuss. <laughs> Um, yeah. What's funny is I would say that they couldn't, they're such different people in my mind that mm. it's hard for me to like compare them now that it, now that you put it to me that way, I bet you actually could if you think about it. 
Pelosi is somebody who genuinely believes in her heart of hearts, I, I think, in coalition building and in, in getting and, and using power honestly. And she does so in service of, of political goals, right? Okay. D- d- on that, let me just hold you to that. I don't want to trip you up. Hold that thought. Republicans would say she rammed Obamacare down our necks in 2010 uh she wasn't building coalition at all then <laughs> the reason yeah they would love to say that that's the thing they would say um i would say the opposite i would say after 80 years of democrats trying over and over again every time they got into office to pass some kind of universal health care bill nancy pelosi was the person who actually made it happen and she did so because she took a diverse coalition and that one of the problems that the Democrats have always had is that they have a more diverse coalition than the Republicans, mm-hmm. not just like at race and gender, but I mean, this ideologically there, there's a lot more broadness and there was more then than there is now. And she was able to make sure that every back was scratched in Congress and she got the vote she needed, you know, you know, I, I think McConnell on the other hand is somebody who, He's not very interested in like holding together a diverse coalition. What he is is he's just a power hungry monster who will do whatever it takes to to get and maintain power and his his the Republican Party backs that because they are not a diverse coalition, so it doesn't really matter. Okay. Um, right. Let me just push back a little to use an overused American phrase, pushing back, right? So power hungry crazed politician or words to that effect that you use for mitch mcconnell <laughs> when when this new uh, congress was voted in many of the new congress freshmen said eh, we don't really want pelosi to be the speaker of the house mm-hmm. she represents the old democratic party stayed they don't take it to trump etc etc but she managed to yeah. hang on to that speakership didn't she yeah, um, I had no doubt that she would, and I had no doubt she would do it exactly the way she did, which was... Power crazed. She didn't want to give up that gavel. There <laughs> you go. Or I would say she went and she knocked on the doors of every person that was still up in the era of voting for her, and she sat down and asked for their vote, and most of the time got it. <laughs> Said, right, I'll put you on this committee, that committee, etc. Yeah. Power, and- power crazed. That's not power craze. That's just how politics Being, being a politician. Yeah. Right. Whereas McConnell, what he's trying to do with his power is to shut out the representation of the people. He's trying to use the, the courts and he's trying to use gerrymandering and, and every trick in the book to get difficult for the people or their representatives to, to have the, the voice that their numbers dictate in, in Congress. Mm. It was somewhat of a genius move for him to um, not have any confirmation hearings on Merrick Garland, to string that out for, what, some nine, ten months. Exactly. Speaker Pelosi, of course, deserves a ton of credit for holding her ground and claiming what is unquestionably a win for her. Her power has increased. She outmaneuvered the president over these last uh, over this last month. Let's talk theatrics. Trump walks out with that usual strut of his, you know, the open coat, the big long overcoat, the tie eight feet long, and he swaggers out, even though it's about three degrees out in Washington, he comes out and swaggers out as if he'd won. Well, look, it's a salesman. That's what he does. Well, salesman, conman, you know, that's what he does. You know, you talk about the art of the deal. If the art of the deal is going bankrupt, that's Donald Trump. He's gone bankrupt six times, and you know now on the financial service committee, there's people that's going to be looking at those dealings. Uh, so there's a big, there's big things that's going on. Yes, you want. Sorry to interrupt. There's Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House. Yes. Uh, signing the bills to get the government wide open. Uh, is he going to call her Nancy anymore? Is that over? Well, I thought it was. Very that's interesting. his nickname for he, her. He, in the Oval Office of the day, he said, "You know, Nancy Pelosi, or as I call her, Nancy," which is not a devastating nickname for the president. <laughs> uh, it's been interesting that he has at this point. He doesn't know what to make of her. We knew before she was elected speaker, he was telling people around her, around him, that he felt like she could, he could deal with her, that he did respect her, that yes, she's been a, a useful whipping boy for, or girl in this case, I guess, for Republicans for a long time. They've raised a lot of money off of her name, but, but privately he thought like, I can negotiate with her and then go on a rally stage and bash her. But right now, 
He has been utterly outplayed by the speaker. Will Pelosi go toe-to-toe with Trump in the run-up to Iowa and during the primaries, so leaving the Democratic candidates, who seem to be multiplying with each passing day, free to not talk about the oath in office? I hope so, and and certainly I think that that's the plan. Um, Pelosi doesn't care if she's popular. (laughs) You know, in in approval ratings, because she's always going to be popular in her district, and she's always going to be popular in Congress. Um, so she can she can go ahead and stick her neck out and just let herself become this villain in the media. Um, it, 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 I think that that would be a wise strategy. That they did something similar in the two thousand and sixteen election, where Elizabeth Warren used the fact that she was in a safe seat. She was newly elected, so not up for re-election for a while, to to be the um, the attack dog against Trump and kind of let Hillary Clinton rise above a bit. Um, that would I wouldn't be surprised if they do a very similar thing going into 2020. Let's go back over to Westminster. Alice, this is, I'm going to say a pivotal week, but I think every week that passes... Uh, since 2016 we said it's a pivotal week in British politics but this does feel like there is something happening this week with the amount of amendments that various backbenchers have tabled against Brexit or at least a no-deal Brexit without wanting to go into the nuance and the whys and the wherefores of each individual amendment whether it's Dominic Greaves or Yvette Coopers etc etc where do you see Britain being in a week's time let's let's not talk about march 29th give us uh the alice thwaite uh rubbing your crystal ball nostradamus white witch view of the future because i your guess is as good as any is whether you are a political pundit or whether you are a politician in westminster nobody knows what actually what's what's going to happen but give us some kind of plausible seven-day scenario in terms of positionally where the british government and its relationship with europe will be and maybe the tory party with its backbenchers i don't know well the eu has already said that they're not they haven't got the time to create a new agreement Right. So I think we're still back at the same point where it's going to be no deal or Theresa May's initial deal with the backstop, with everything that everyone's squabbling about. So I see what's going on here is some sort of kind of we're talking about symbolism as kind of a theme for this episode. It is a kind of a symbolic way of MPs trying to assert some sort of power and to try and show that they are not part of this doomed government that we currently have. Um, So I don't really see there being any difference there. Um, I, I, I. I I do personally think that the most likely scenario is going to be a no deal Brexit um, purely because I don't see unless unless Theresa May is literally toppled, which we've tried to do quite a few times, both from within the Conservative Party and uh, from Labour. um, I can't I can't see her taking Brexit off the table. So that's that's my crystal ball is. is a no deal Brexit. And I see what's going on right now is politicians trying to do damage control within their own constituencies and to try and not be part of the sinking ship, basically to try and get on any lifeboat that they can. Well, I don't know if I quite agree with that because if you're Jacob Rees-Mogg, this is not a, a sinking ship. This is a, a great opportunity. But we're just over two months to go before we're due to leave the EU. And with this uh, week of um, backbench amendments, which John Burko is allowed to be uh, aired, we are starting to see a tiny bit of movement with some Tories actually saying that they, they potentially could drop their opposition to the backstop. And we there's even um, Boris Johnson had a um, an opinion piece in the Telegraph today, and he's somewhat softened his stance. Is this because everyone's starting to sweat because we're two months away from from crashing out, or is this genuine? potential consensus forming I, I genuinely see that every politician is just trying to cover their own cover their own back right now the two options are only well there are three options but the people's vote is out uh, no brexit a uh, no deal brexit which means that we crash out of the eu without a no de- without a deal and the other is theresa's may theresa may's deal and i think that what each politician is trying to do is try and kind of think well how do i position myself in such a way that means that I'm not going to be like hung, drawn and quartered um, on, 
you know, March the 30th. I mean, there are obviously some great politicians who, like David Lammy um, from uh, Labour and also... Um, oh, gosh, I've just completely Let, let me stop you. We cannot call him great until he comes on the show like he said he was going to <laughs> so david lammy um your uh, your secretary your personal your parliamentary uh, secretary we've been emailing each other you said he would come on let's get him on anyway yeah, as you were alice um no I, I and also i would love for the opportunity to to kind of have some sort of link with david lammy other than following him on twitter but um I've just forgotten the name of the... Who's the very pro-EU um, pro conservative politician who I also love? Oh, he's the guy up in she, Lincolnshire. She, she, she. Oh, Anna Subri. Yes, Anna Subri. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, they, they've already kind of made their position very clear and I think they will, you know, people will look very favourably upon them. But yeah, every other politician like Boris Johnson or these kind of minor backbench politicians who haven't really made their minds up and then are trying to go with the government... I, I would be, you know, in the same place as them. I'd be trying to save my seat for the next general election. With the possible exceptions of some people like George Freeman in the Conservative Party, who has started to try and take a stand on this a bit earlier than everyone else. So, yeah, I, uh, I haven't got that much faith in politicians right now. Um, and I think there's many of them that have shown themselves completely lacking throughout this entire crisis. Mm. Sounds to me like you could be swept along with uh, some charismatic populist if you say you have got no no belief in, in politics. You, you're you're right for a fascist then than Alice right now. I mean, I, I I'm always offended that you might say that sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, yeah, that's the sort of thing. I think we are at a crisis point right now, and I don't think I am ripe for a fascist in the sense that like I'm going to be swept like populism. Basically, the definition of populism is the fact that you define the people as being one thing and you exclude another group of people so that that is the actual definition of populism um, it's about kind of exclusionary politics it's about believing that one group whether or not you're kind of like economically um, like you're doing economically badly compared to an elite that's a form of populism other forms of populism are against immigrants and that kind of thing so no I don't think the position that I have is I'm sorry I've just taken the, the challenge very seriously no, but no, 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 important no, listen, to clarify what populism I've, is I've at this be, stage I, Listen, Alice, I've been chastened. And as uh, somebody who frequently hears uh, politicians talk about working class people, uh, which is meant to mean uh, the common or garden people, they always exclude uh, people of colour when they say that deliberately. They get excluded. And actually what they also exclude for the most part is women that working class people is a synonym for just saying men absolutely right? and yeah. and that is uh, the, the the populist credo so even though i'll be you slapped me down but i did actually agree with you anyway but but well done you uh, let's just end up miss marcotte with you all right because i don't know how many democrats have uh, declared to run at the moment but, you know, i've run out of <laughs> fingers and thumbs Exactly. And uh, Kamala Harris did seem uh, rather good um, in Oakland, um, a city which I know and love and I spend a lot of time in. So I, w I wish I was there to go and uh, see her campaign rally the other day. If Pelosi was to run right here and now, she'd have it sewn up, <laughs> wouldn't she? <laughs> I she's not know she's not going to. I know, I know she's not going to. But, you know, you, you can have a little bit of a fantasy as... Uh, a Democrat supporting Brit and to say, well, here's somebody who would cut through all of those candidates, uh, you know, like a hot knife through butter right now. It'd be Nancy <laughs> Pelosi, wouldn't it? Oh, no, I don't think so. I, I, that's really? just not her. No, that, she's not. That's not her thing. I, I don't think that she's particularly interested in, in, in a Democratic primary. I think she enjoys being oh, a no, congressperson. Uh, no, no, I'm not saying she is going to run. I'm not even saying that she should run. I'm just saying fantasize if she did run, she would be the next president of the United States of America. I don't think she has the presidential candidate thing that huh. for better or for worse, the U.S. voter still craves. Um, Somebody you'd like to go and have a beer with. That, that yeah, kind of nonsense. Still, there's still a lot of pouring of people's like um, kind of almost juvenile identity politics into the presidential race. And, and Nancy Pelosi is awesome, but she's, I think not 
that I hate this word, but she's not relatable. And that still matters, I think, in in presidential politics. Um, I think uh, John Lovett described her as a gun in a Prada bag <laughs> this weekend, <laughs> um, which is great. I, I, I wish I was like that, but I also know that most people don't like that. <laughs> I don't know. Aren't you getting to uh, sizable demographics in America? If if you're a gun, that's that's the South uh, sewed up, and then you got your East Coast West Coast elites with with your Prada bag. Boom! That, that's a winning coalition. I like that. And on that note, folks, let's go to our takeaways of the last seven days. Alice Thwaite. Uh, oh, by the way, Alice, before we go on to takeaways of the week, how's your dad? Is he getting better? Uh, yeah, we've actually got some really good news this past week, which is that he's not going to have to do chemotherapy. So, uh, yeah, we're all smiles now. Um, but, yeah, he's got, I was saying to Amanda last week, he's been diagnosed with this genetic incurable cancer. Um, so he's never going to beat it as such. It's going to wear him down. But it sounds like it's kind of similar to like a, an immune disease like AIDS or something like that, where they can kind of treat it. But you've always got it, if you know what I mean. So, yeah, mm. it's... Uh, been a tough month but um it's nearly february now and it's my birthday on wednesday so uh yeah start the new year afresh thank you for asking you were missed on, on the last pod so it's the least i could do just to ask yeah i'm so sorry that i couldn't make it was just when it was just it, hey yeah, yeah yeah stop it stop it family always comes first G- give us your takeaway the last seven days you so it might not be over the last seven days but i have got a plug if that's okay and that's that mm-hmm. my uh, my podcast has started again the uh tech with uh talking with Alice about tech shit, if you're allowed to swear on this podcast. Um, so we've got the new... Uh, there's the no new, standards on this podcast. There's no standards. <laughs> um, so yeah, the new series has started and it's really cool actually because I don't know where all the new listeners have come from, but it seems that people like what we're talking about. So the idea is it's just half an hour of um, a couple of jokes, but also talking about long-term issues with various technologies and how they're affecting society and whether or not it's ethical or whether or not they're good. And yeah, we've two episodes in and we're looking to continue. Hmm. Good, good. Is that allowed as a takeaway of the week? Listen to my podcast. Well, you've done it now. <laughs> <laughs> it's totally fine. It's totally fine. Uh, Amanda Marcotte, over to you in Philadelphia. That's a, a tough one. I've um, been spending all my time playing board games, I think, this day. <laughs> but um, you know what I, I actually did do this, uh, we started to do at this house uh, this past week was um, re-watch Game of Thrones from the beginning in preparation for the final season coming up in April. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it's been delightful. I it's It's such a good show and... It's. I recommend anybody does it who likes the show, who liked the show the first time, because you really realize from the first season how much they're seeding all the sort of things that are going to happen later on. Uh, you just hear one line after another that only actually ends up making complete sense seven seasons out. And I'm now, of course, a lot of that has to do with the fact that it's based on a series of books that. Um, the writers kind of knew where the story was going from the beginning. So, you know, they're not like some kind of super geniuses in that way, but mm-hmm. still it's super fun to, to realize that this was wherever the story's heading. It's, it has that sense of being a kind of complete story from beginning to end, like a, a, a very novelistic literary thing where everything kind of ties together from beginning to end. You know, I, I couldn't agree with you more that the, when I first watched Game of Thrones, well, first off, I watched the first episode um, about a month or so after it came out, like 2012 or something or another. And I'm not into hobbits and wizards and goblins. And all I saw were these big, like, grey people, blue eyes. And after 20 minutes, I just went, you know what, I'm out of this. You know, I didn't like all this Tolkien stuff and I'm, I'm not having this. And, and I switched it off. 18 months later, everybody and their, and their aunt is telling me, you need to watch this. This is so good. So I watched it again and got through the first episode and then fell in love with it. And it was so immersive. But somebody who's um, history bore like I am, half of my love of it was to see where they've taken real historical uh, incidents and then embellished it and given it a left turn 
And then also it's just so sumptuous to look at. It's so beautifully shot and visually is immersive. And that's before you get into the, the characters and the storylines, etc. And yeah, then I, I got completely up to date so uh so so quickly so you know it couldn't have been it couldn't have been 18 months afterwards maybe it was like three years afterwards anyway cut a long story short when i then went back after getting completely up to time and then started to watch them again exactly what you said it was a revelation the red wedding is not a total surprise when you see all the clues beforehand but when you're watching it in real time it was like what the hell's going on here? Why have people just been murdered and slaughtered? But you're completely right. All the clues are there. And it's uh, genius uh, writing. There is not one line of that thing which is thrown away for no use. Everybody says things of great importance, just that you don't realise. And they're said in a very kind of casual way. And, and it's a genius bit of writing and drama that way. And stuff so i must admit i can't wait for it to start like like half the planet i'll be there with my illegal torrent because you know da- downloading it and whatever i'll freely hold my hand up and say i watched that thing illegally because i don't have um was it hbo or, or, get now or whatever TV. get now tv royfield oh all right well the thing is though i don't know what country i'll be in oh, uh, c- c- come april yeah that's the problem that's the problem um <laughs> Now it's time for me to do my my takeaway. And I must admit, uh, folks, I'm kind of scrambling for one. Whilst Amanda and Alison were were talking away, I was clicking on link after link. Uh, I'm going to just say this. I bumped into, well, I'll say a couple of things. Um, There's a very dear friend of mine who, um, as is the way, especially if you're somebody like me, who you you end up moving from from place to place? Uh, we we fell out a con uh, we, we fell out of contact um, years ago. So I think the last time I saw her was I don't know like 2010, 2011, and she uh, and about eighteen months ago I was uh, I decided to uh, to kind of track her down and I googled her, and she'd written a blog, and it was a blog about the fact that she had breast cancer and she was going through chemotherapy and i must admit i burst out crying i just hadn't i had no idea uh what she was going through we hadn't spoke to each other in you know in years we just fall you know just just drifted you know there was no big argument which, which we part you know we parted ways and it was just so moving to write to see what she'd written about her fight against cancer and the reason why I bring that up today is because now we were kind of friends again and I go and hang out with her and and all her hair has now grown back and she is fighting fit. And not only that, she is a ridiculously articulate advocate for people who have survived cancer. And one of the ironies is, is that we used to watch The Big C together, that that comedy show about 10 years ago and as I'm reminded of Alison today her name's Alison Carter because she was on BBC Radio 4 this morning talking to Nick Robinson who is somebody who also had cancer talking about uh, the cliches that people come out with saying that oh you've got breast cancer you're lucky to have that one you can get over that cancer you know and, and things like that and she's such an eloquent powerful wonderful speaker that Macmillan Cancer Trust uh, frequently get her uh, to be their kind of human face of uh, people who have survived uh, the big C. So um, so that's it, really. I'm just talking about my friend. Uh, she's been on BBC Radio for today talking about um, getting over something which we wouldn't wish, wish on anybody. And she's just such um, a wonderful spirit and uh, she's a wonderful person. So there you go. Alice Thwaite, um, why don't you tell people the name of that podcast again that you're hawking on mine, all right, and where they can find you on social media? Sure. So I'm on Twitter, Alice L. Thwaite. And, and the podcast, um, it's called Talking with Alice About Tech Shit, but that an acronym, acronym <laughs> is actually TWATS. So it's, <laughs> it's a triple A TWATS. But if you're an American listener, you might not find that as funny as a British person. Um, so yeah, if you search on any kind of podcast provider for T W A A A T S, you'll uh, you'll hear my voice 
for us, you know, there's quite a few hours up there actually, so you can listen to me all night. <laughs> awesome. Miss um, Marcotte over in Philadelphia, why don't you give us your credentials? I am a senior political writer for Salon.com, so you can check out my writing there and you can follow me on Twitter. It's just my name, Amanda Marcotte. And of course, I am on Twitter. I'm at Royfield. And oh, well, I do actually have a tiny bit of news. A um, couple of things that I'm doing at the moment. Um, a new podcast. Yay, yet another one, uh, which um, a thing called Map Corner. There is a tiny little trailer. So if you go to mapcorner.space, uh, you can hear a trailer where I speak to Simon Kustenmacher, who is uh, Twitter's king of maps. He's the person, if you've ever retweeted a map on, on Twitter, invariably uh simon is the person who has created that and found it somewhere and is um, a, a lovely human being so if you're a geek like me and uh, you love a map map corner is my new podcast but i have to give a massive shout out uh to the commonwealth uh that a quarter of the world's population that are part of this club because the commonwealth not only is it um a fantastically diverse set of uh, countries that are part of the Commonwealth have also decided to commission me to do a podcast for them. So I am now the producer of Commonwealth Voices and the first episode features the Jamaica Environment Trust fighting uh, dump fires in Kingston, Jamaica and Susan Stanley is the CEO of that organisation and it was an utter pleasure to be able to cut together that show which shows... Um, a local Jamaican uh, body, people's body, fighting the kind of um, the neglect of uh, Jamaican citizens at the hands of the Jamaican government, and and the fact that they uh, managed to overcome that and get the dump kind of closed down, get the government to agree to close it down and to, to stop the practices there. So, and they got a grant from the Commonwealth to 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 do this advocacy work. So, so that's me. So go Commonwealth Voices should be in a podcatcher near you uh, in mid Feb. Uh, Map Corner should be with you a little bit sooner, and there is a tiny little trailer. Uh, I'm at Royfield on Twitter. Twitter. We're at Mid Atlantic Show. Don't forget, people, be nice to each other um, because being nice to each other is actually good politics. That's us. Toodaloo. See you all again soon. Bye bye. Bye bye. I like your little bye byes. Bye. <laughs> I've noticed you do that, Marcut. All right, <laughs> let's hit stop. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.